I cry an awful lot. And there are two reasons for that. First of all, it's because the Lord God Almighty is making me like Jesus. That's why I cry. Because he's making me like Jesus. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And our Lord Jesus Christ, when he was on this earth, wept, wept openly, wept like a man openly. And he weeps now in heaven for his children. I really believe that. Another reason why I cry is that I am not what I should be. I'm in the process of being healed as well. And there are some things that I speak about that happens. They hook into my baggage. They hook into my stuff. Some of it deep down inside. And, you know, I'm past. I am really past the point where I could bottle this up. I can no longer do that. God's already taken a sledgehammer with me several years ago and whacked me well and good. And there's a big old crack there and it just comes out. So get used to it. And if God is very merciful to you, he'll whack you as well, so it'll come out. We're heading towards the book of Exodus. You know Exodus, the story of how God delivered a whole nation of slaves from Egypt and took them to the promised land. It's a story of ex-slaves. The book of Exodus is a story of unhealthy people being redeemed and changed. It's a picture of our salvation then, really. And because of the heaviness that was amongst us last week, you know, I think today what I want to do is just dip our toes into one portion of the book of Exodus there and see if we can get some healing. Let me set the scene, if I can, a little bit. Here's this whole nation, do you remember? Uh, Abraham was told by God they're going to go down to Egypt and they'll be de there for 400 years before I deliver them. Well, they were there and they were in bondage and it was really, really hard for them in Egypt. Their nationhood, their personality, everything was stolen from them. They were not the people that they should have been, that's for sure. And so God came to them through this man called Moses and he delivered them out of Egypt. And it was through a, a whole series of miraculous events that we may get a chance to go into later on. But the biggest miraculous event was this. God led them into this box canyon. The sea in front of them. Mountains to the left and the right. And the whole of the Egyptian hordes pursuing them. And there was nowhere that they could go apart from through the waters. And God miraculously opened up the waters and they went through on dry land. About two and a half million of them. All the cats and the dogs and the cattle, everything on dry land. And when they stood in awe at the other side there, they saw the armies of Pharaoh follow them on dry land through the sea, coming towards them, bearing down upon them. And God closed up the water and killed them all dead. The party that the Israelites had there, well you see nothing like it. There was singing, there was dancing, the prophet Miriam there, she had her tambourine out, she was going for it. They were singing pop songs and everything, you know, I will sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and rider thrown into the sea. I had a great old time. The Israelites out of Egypt finally stopped sweating, seeing all of their enemies destroyed. With their own eyes they saw the horse and the rider, the army of the oppressor, drowned in the Red Sea. It's like what this verse said here in Isaiah 51 verse 9. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. 
Are you not the arm that cut Rahab apart and wounded the serpent? Are you not the one who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the depths of the sea a road for the redeemed to cross over? So the ransom of the Lord shall return. And come to Zion with singing, and everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow, sighing, shall flee away. That's for you. That's what it's going to be like in heaven. It's wonderful. And here's Isaiah there in Isaiah 51, crying out to God, you know, saying, Get up, get up, God! Start flexing your muscles. Come and fight for us, just like you did in days of old when you crushed Egypt, Rahab. That's what he's saying there. That's what happened. And they had a great time. It was a great cause for praise. And if there's any cause for praise, it's that. It's marvellous. There's a time for everything. There's a time for praising and happiness. And that was it. But it came time for them to move on. Listen now. God moved them on from this great deliverance and he took them to a place. He moved them on from this place of exaltation towards a place of expectancy. You know how they were led? They were led during the day by a fiery pillar. They could see it in front of them. Two and a half million people couldn't mistake this great tower of fiery pillar that went up from the ground right up to the clouds there and they followed it. God was leading them. And they were expectant because God was leading them to the promised land. And so we read this. Let me read this out to you in Exodus 15 verse 22. So, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and they found no water. And when they came to Marah, they couldn't drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. Therefore the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses. They always do, you know, when they can't drink. They complained against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Imagine two and a half million people moaning to one man, what shall we drink? So he cried out to the Lord and the Lord showed him a tree and he cast it into the waters and the waters were made sweet. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them and there he tested them and he said if you diligently hear the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes I'll put none of these diseases on you which I brought on the Egyptians for I am the Lord who heals you. It's marvellous isn't it? And my message title this morning is taken from there it's the sweet Jesus tree. Now look, do you see the words there in verse 25? It's important that we look at the words in verse 25 because I don't want you to miss it this morning. It says there, There, where? At Marah, at the place of bitter waters, there he made an ordinance and a rite and a statute. There he made a statute and an ordinance for them and there he tested them. See, when you're on any new venture, you set out your goals so that we want to know what we're going to achieve. And if you're a leader, of course, you share your goals with the people that you're leading. You don't want them to miss out on what you want to achieve, where you're going. This is a whole new venture for God here. Imagine that. This is a new venture for God Almighty. 
And so he is about, right at the beginning of this venture, to set out his goals and his designs for his people, his requirements. Of course he will, and that's what God's doing here. You know, many of us are from Christian families. Some of us might be third or fourth generation Christians and have had the opportunity of being brought up in the ways of the Lord, and that's great. But many of us won't be like that. They'll be first generation Christians, just like the people here in the book of Exodus. Redeemed slaves, first generation redeemed people. I don't want to make excuses for sin, but I just want to state the facts here, that the Israelites that we're looking at this morning, at these bitter waters, Mara, they need to be regarded as similar to first generation Christians. They've been redeemed from the bondage of Egypt, but they've been slaves there for 400 years. Many Christians have been redeemed from some horrendous things into the glorious liberty of the sons of God. But they've been a lot of crap before then. And generationally they carry an awful lot of baggage and bondage as well. These redeemed slaves here, they now wear the robes of royalty. They've come out rich from Egypt. They've plundered the Egyptians. They're going to the promised land just like us. They're the apple of God's eye just like us. They're going to be the receivers and the keepers of God's law just like us. And God was leading them to Mount Sinai. And what were they really like? Well, <laughs> they were just like us. Just like me and you. This long slavery had degraded their minds. They were in many respects at this point, Brian, incapable of great acts of faith Feats of faith. They were incapable of it. They weren't really truly noble in the sense of being the redeemed princes of the Lord of life, the Most High God. They were ex-slaves. They just washed the skid marks out of their underwear, having seen air, you know, Pharaoh drowned in the sea. They were frightened. Don't you think they were scared? They were scared. Big time. They were sweating and smelling. They'd only just washed out all their clothes and got sorted out. And God is dealing with these redeemed people straight away. Three days later, he takes them to this place here because they've got a lot to learn. We have got a lot to learn. Do you know, in just a little while, these people, when Moses, when he gets to Sinai, when he goes up on the mount for 40 days, they're going to panic so much. But what they're going to do, even though God has delivered them, even though they've seen such majestic and just awesome miracles. They're going to get all the gold together and make a malted calf and worship it and have a good old orgy and get drunk at the same time. The redeemed people of God for crying out loud. And we do exactly the same. We first generation Christians. Even though they've been redeemed from four centuries of slavery, you know, at some point they're going to long to go back there. They're going to say, oh, I wish that we were back in Egypt. I really do. Because do you know what we miss more than anything? Garlic, onions, stuff like that. Look at this, Numbers 11. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. And the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and, and the onions and the garlics. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna from heaven. This is the redeemed people of God. 
And even though they're going to get to the promised land, God is going to take them there. They're going to send out spies and the spies are going to come back and say, oh my, we better not go in there. Because I tell you what, we are like grasshoppers compared to the people in there. And their towns and cities, their walls go up to the very heavens. There's no way that we can go in there. And they're all going to go... <laughs> And God's going to have to allow all of them to die in the wilderness while he waits for another generation. Being first generation redeemed people is a messy affair. And it's a very dangerous affair. Especially if we do not learn the lessons that God wants to teach us. And so this is why he wants to share his plan with us. He wants to mould them and us into a holy nation capable of serving him acceptably and with great joy. That's what he's about. So this is why he made a statute and an ordinance for them and at Mara he tested them. Just three days into their exodus they were taken there. There's a reason for this and I'm going to repeat this several times and we're going to go round this little mountain a lot because we've got to get this. If we get it, it'll change our lives. And we need to be careful about how we judge these ex-Egyptian slaves because we're just the same. We are. Why do Christians make such a mess of things? Why do we screw up so much? It's because of our long crushed spirit, our mental degradation, all of these things account for our many unbelievable acts, our complaints and our second thoughts about following Jesus after our escape from, G from Egypt. We're exactly the same. The receivers of God's grace can do astounding and astonishing things. They can rape the grace of God. We do. We need to say that we're very sorry to our Lord Jesus about that. He wants to mould us into a nation capable of serving him. And let me show you now how he's going to do this. He's going to do it because he's going to take us to Mara there and he's going to make a statute, an ordinance and he's going to test us there. And God is going to do this at Mara, not by words, but by a living picture. He's going to give us today because these things are written for our benefit on whom the end of the ages have come. This is what God is doing. With a living picture, he's going to show us what this ordinance is, this right, and this test. It's a great trinity of instruction. It's a trinity of God's goals that he is setting out here for you. The leading of Israel to bitter waters which they couldn't drink, and then the sweetening of the bitter waters, was for them an ordinance, that's a rule, a law, a fixed guideline, a right, that's an access to a promise, and it was a test. Let me repeat that. God's leading of his people to Mara was for them a fixed guideline, a promise and a test. An ordinance, a right and a test there. Here's the ordinance. Here's the fixed guideline. God will always guide them. He will always lead his redeemed people to show them the inadequacies of their bitter self-life. God will always lead you in that way. He'll show you the bitterness of your self-resources, of your relying on your past resources, your past lessons, your past life, your past responses, yourself, your self-enhancement, your self-projection, your self-protection. 
God will always, even with brand new Christians, especially with brand new Christians, take them to some bitter waters and say, drink. This is really bad. It's an ordinance, it's a fixed guideline, it's what God does. And we get surprised by this. How can God do this to me? But he will do it. I'm going to take you there and show you. This is what he's done three days from the redemption of Egypt. He took them to Mara for a fixed guideline. And he wants to show them something here. Here's the right. Here's the right for us. When we've tasted our bitter waters, found it insufficient, got sick of it, had done with it, can't live with it, when we've seen that it's actually death to us, then we can always count on the help of God for delivery from every trouble, the sweetening of every bitter thing. That's the right that we have through Jesus Christ. Here's the test, and it is a big test. This test is a twofold test. First of all, we don't believe that God will actually do this to us. God's not like that, is he? Yes, he is. <laughs> yes, he is. And he will do that to you. And secondly, here's the big test. When he does it to us, and we really get in our mess, and we really taste of our bitterness, it's hard to believe that God is going to make it sweet. It's a test of faith when God leads us to the bitter waters of our self-life to taste them and then to believe that he can make them sweet. Three days from redemption and God's taken them there because they must begin in faith, continue in faith and end in faith. Must begin in the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, rest in the Spirit. Even at such an early age, they must see this truth, this ordinance, this right, this test, because they need to, right at the very beginning, breathe that. Smell that sweet hope of Jesus in the darkness, in the bitterness. We need to smell him who our souls love. You know, the Lord is a warrior. There's no doubt about that. They need to see this. They need to see this ordinance, this right and this test. But the warrior of the Lord, the commander of the Lord of hosts, there's something special about him that Psalm 45 says, My heart is overflowing, says the writer with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue's the pen of a ready writer. You are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, and with your glory and your majesty, and in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, righteousness, and your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. People fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness, hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. Look with the oil of gladness more than your companions. All your garments are scented with myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces by which they have made you glad. Our great high priest is an anointed priest with a special holy perfume 
that drips down his hair and across his beard and onto the breastplate of righteousness where are written Jesse's name Debbie's name Robert's name and he is glad that we are his and our warrior king that deals with darkness and leads us to bitter waters smells good some of you guys need to know that this is a godly thing to smell good <laughs> Jesus is wonderful and in our salty bitterness we need to take a deep breath through our nostrils and smell how good he is the sweet hope of Jesus Christ the warrior king that makes all of our bitter waters sweet Jesus said know this at the beginning know this at the middle know this at the end I am Jehovah Rapha I am the Lord who heals you let me show you the working of this marvel and if you get it, if you see it, it's going to change your life completely that's not just an idle promise I really believe that, I found it to be true, I'm finding it to be true because there's something that we need to know here there is no bitterness that the Lord cannot sweeten there is no bitterness that the Lord cannot sweeten Remember, when you came to Jesus, he redeemed you, forgave you all your sin, gave you a new heart. And like the Israelites, you saw your sin drowned in the Red Sea. It was gone forever, Marge. Past, present, future, forgiven, glorious, all gone. Your sins will I remember no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far have I placed your sin from you. I've put them in the great sea behind my back and put on a big sign, no fishing dealt with. It's glorious and we sing don't we free at last free at last pass behind us the cross before us and we've got his promises in our heart he says I'll never leave you or forsake you I'm preparing a place for you when you see me you'll be like me I've got a plan to prosper you not harm you I'm going to sanctify you I'm going to make you holy through and through I'll guide you and direct you with my eye you'll hear a voice behind you saying go to the right and to the left for my sheep hear my voice and we said Amen we're on to the promised land here we go everything's fantastic and so along with Israel Jesus, the Holy Spirit, turned us east towards the rising sun, towards the coming of the Messiah. And then, horror of horrors. Like Israel, he takes us to Mara in the wilderness of Shur. We won't choose to go there. Flesh and blood recoils from this place because it is a place of bitterness and yet God takes his young redeemed people there. He'll take you there. Have I said this? He'll take you there. Have I said this? He will take you there. It's a fixed guideline. Some of you are still there. Some of you will revisit there. Mara's this picture of everything that we've known, touched, tasted, lent upon, longed for and has still got its hooks in us. Everything that's not God. The wilderness of Shaw, can you see that down at the bottom of the map there? Literally, it's a walled wilderness. That's what the word means. It's a walled wilderness. Some people think that it was a natural phenomenon, 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 a long ridge. Everything echoed in there, you see. Everything repeated itself. The past seemed to repeat itself. 
Some people think it referred to fortifications built by the Egyptians that were equivalent in those days to the Great Wall of China, fortifications that would keep people out of Egypt. Sure is a picture of our walled up self-resources and the funny thing is we find stored up there all of our past hurts and all of our inbred sins and all of our generational sins are all there. The Israelites are out of Egypt, but Egypt is not out of the Israelites. You have been redeemed from your past, but your past is not yet out of you. It's a terrible thing, but we need to be truthful about this and recognise it. We've been saved from the penalty of sin, we've been saved from the power of sin, we really have, but we've not yet been saved from the presence of sin, not yet. And so in this way, like the Israelites, we always carry some of Egypt still in us. Some of the sands of the Nile still between our toes. And like Hagar, do you remember? Whenever we run away from God, we flee to the wilderness of the wall. The wilderness of shore. We run away, we're behind our wall and we say, don't come. Don't come near me. Oh, we can do this with laughter. I can keep you away from me and make you laugh. You will laugh your socks off. But you know something? I've learned that as a skill. You will never know me or come near me because you'll be laughing with me or at me. But you'll never know me. I had to learn that as a little boy getting bullied. I remember the day when I realised humour will keep people from hitting me. Make them laugh, make them laugh. And so I do. It's a great skill. You do the same. What's your skill? To keep people away from the real you. How do you get behind your walled wilderness and say, get away from me, I can cope, I can handle it myself, I've learnt to do so, I've graduated from seminary. We fix my smile now. So you think everything's okay. I've been in the Word, it's fine. It's good. <laughs> Genesis 16 verse 7 says of Hagar, who rang to this very place, the wilderness of Shur, the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring, by the way of Shur, and he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said, return to your mistress. Submit yourself unto her hand. Go back to your master, brother. That's what Jesus says. Go back to your Lord, sister. Submit yourself to him. Why are you withdrawing yourself from me? Isolation of people is the first sign that something is desperately wrong. Isolation is the first sign that things are really wrong. And we need to go and get one another. Because we're here, down in the wilderness of shore, having a gigantic pity party, and we need rescuing. Here is the ordinance. The Lord takes his people there as well. Now listen to this. What a terrible sequel to I will sing to the Lord who has triumphed gloriously, who has delivered me from everything. It's true, God will lead us there. God will take us to this place as well because he wants us to stop running there. You see, we run there because we've not really tasted how bitter it is. No, we've made friends with all of this rubbish. We're comfortable with it. It's far more comfortable than being in the place where we've just got to be. We've got to get all that rubbish out and all the emotions sorted out. Let's get back behind that walled wilderness there. 
Well, God takes us there, and in his mercy he says, I want to show you a few things here. Look at this. Taste it. It's a taste and test scenario. That's what the Lord Jesus is all about here. By this difficult test, the Lord was going to prove his people and cause them to see what was really in their hearts. Listen to this. What their driving forces really were. You see, we're all fine birds, as Spurgeon says, until we get our feathers ruffled. The church needs to be a place where people get their feathers ruffled. It's got to be. Because otherwise, that onion's going to stay unpeeled. Otherwise, we're going to have our game face on when it's awful. Otherwise, we're going to come and pretend to be what we're not. Pretend to be where we're not. And God doesn't want that. And so, within our community, we're going to have ruffles. We're going to taste some bitterness. And we're going to test the goodness of the Lord. Listen to what Spurgeon says about Christians. We're just a mess of diseases and a bundle of disorders. And unless grace prevents us, we're sure we are the sure prey of death. We pray, O Lord, refine us and heal us. But we don't really know what it means. The purpose of Mara and God taking the people there three days out of Egypt is to show the bitterness of who they really are because our disease is not so much with our bodies, it's more with our hearts, it's more in our spirits. And the purpose of Mara is to show us the driving forces of our heart so that we can detest them, not rely on them and certainly not utilise them. It's important so that we can be healed of the diseases caused by them. You see, ex-slaves have disease tendencies that are inbred tendencies and they need healing. You know that? We've got inbred sins that we need healing and redeeming from. Well, they're forgiven. We've been dealt. You know, the actual penalty of them has been dealt with. As we walk with Jesus, we're going to find the power of them is going to be dealt with too. Until we get to heaven, we're always going to be in this process. Because their presence is always going to be within us. But you know the problem with the church is we've not really got to grips with dealing with inbred sins. You know, we've followed the old lie, I've been forgiven, I don't need to face them. God says, let's go to Mara. Taste this. Because it's driving you mad. How does he do this? It's great, isn't it? It's great that we've been delivered, but I know that you've got a few monsters in your heart. You've got a few monsters that come and visit you in the quiet of the night when you're watching particular movies, listening to particular songs. You try to deal with these memories, but they're there. They won't go away, will they? God says, I'm going to take you to Mara because this is my plan. I want you to see how bitter these driving forces are. I want you to see that they're awful and that they're destroying you and I want you to stop going there. And then the right that I have purchased for you is that you would be healed from them and delivered. And it's going to be a test of faith because you need to believe me in this because it's a horrible place. 
according to your faith be it unto you do you believe I can heal you do you believe I can make this thing sweet to you it's really hard but it's only Jesus that can deal with sin and the power of sin and inbred sin and it's only Jesus that can turn this bitterness into sweetness because only he is anointed with the oil of gladness got to believe that it's the first major thing it's a test and taste scenario it's a taste and test scenario let me read this again we're going to go round the mountain again now we've been round it once this is our second time the purpose of Mara is to show the bitterness of who we are let's go back there the purpose of Mara is to show the bitterness of who we are so that we won't rely on our self-life. Two and a half million people have left Egypt. They're in the wilderness of Shur. There is no water. Imagine how much water two and a half million people would have to carry. Water weighs about 62 pounds per cubic foot that would be a lot of weight to carry and God says you're not to carry that at all and he allowed them to journey three days you know the three plus three principle three days without, without water three weeks without food etc three days without water is really bad God's purposefully took them under the hot sun with no water for three days and they are thirsty and then the mighty Lord leads them to Mara. We're here again. This is our final time around this mountain. Look at this. He leads them there. They're thirsty. And he says, I want to show you a guideline here. This is the way I work. And I want to show you a right. And I'm going to test your faith. says in the New Testament we must go through much tribulation to enter the kingdom of heaven and we don't believe it do we the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ we call him the great apostle the apostle Paul do you remember his calling I must show him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake and we have removed suffering from our vocabulary we don't believe that Christians should suffer. It's alright if you're in a communist country, if you're in Iraq and you're spreading the gospel and you're getting beat up and thrown into prison. That's suffering. But the kind of suffering that comes when God leads us to a place of suffering, oh no, that's not right, is it? That's not the kind of tribula tribulation he meant that we need to go through before we enter the kingdom of heaven. I want to suggest to you that it possibly is that it's a hard thing being sanctified through and through body, soul and spirit it really is isn't it it's a hard thing so they get there and they drink the water and it's bitter and God says now watch watch Jewish tradition has that the tree that was taken was of a bitter, barky substance. 
Jewish tradition says that this tree was more bitter in taste than the water it was being put in. You know, a tree is a symbol of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know a tree is a symbol of his death. He was crucified on the tree. It was a bitter place for our Lord Jesus Christ. All of our sins were placed upon him. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the Father turned his back upon him because of your sin, Julie, and because of my sin. It was a bitter place, Calvary, the bitterest of places. Never man died like this man. And it was placed into the waters of our bitterness. The picture here is very clear. You need to get it out. Taste it and get it out. Don't repress it. All that anger, all that cursing, all that hurt, all that weeping, all that mourning that has not happened, all that bitterness of your life, all the abuse you have done to other people, all the abuse they have done to you, all the things that have been said by the bully, your mother, your father, everything that has been heaped upon you, your poverty. And people have laughed at you mocked you, belittled you. All of these things when they deserted you, all of the feelings there and the bitterness that crowd out your innermost being and drive you to react in certain ways, drive you to respond in certain ways, rob you of who you really are in Jesus, you need to touch them, taste them. That's what it means. Taste them. Drink them. Don't deny them. You often hear me saying to people, you know, if you're angry because of this, get in a quiet place and kick the hell out of some tree. Get it out. Let me take you down the boxing club and we'll find a punch bag for you and away you go. Let's get some guys and we'll sit on you and you can kick and you can scream. You want to be angry against God? Be angry against God. We'll help you. We'll stand with you. Get it out. Touch it. But let Jesus be there as well. Introduce the sweet Jesus tree into this. Let him be there in all of your sorrow. Look for him there. Smell him there. Reach out for him there. Find him there. Let him heal your bitterness. One of my prayers to Jesus is this. Just a little bit at a time, please, Lord. Because I'm so frightened. So frightened. If it all comes out at once, it'll kill me. And it probably will. So, Lord Jesus, find me a safe place that I can taste this and be healed of it. That your cross, your death, your burial, your resurrection, your real forgiveness can be my power. That I can find a place, not just to forgive other people, but here's the biggie. That I can find a place to forgive me. Do you know Jesus wants to take you there 
and wants you to taste it, to touch it. That's the thing that you don't often hear from a pulpit, isn't it? But it's the truth. Three days out of Egypt, God Almighty took them to taste the bitter waters and with a living picture put the tree in there, a bitter tree, a very bitter tree, and made it sweet. This is where faith comes in. We've got to believe that only God can do this and I believe only God can do this. Will you listen to this? Peter was below in the courtyard and one of the servant girls of the high priest came and when she saw Peter warming himself she looked at him and said you also were with Jesus of Nazareth but he denied it saying I neither know nor understand what you're saying and he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed and the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by this is one of them but he denied it again and a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean, your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man. And the second time, the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. Luke 22:58. after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him. He's a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're saying. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Look, and the Lord and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. Peter went out, says here in the word, and wept bitterly. Peter had to drink deep, for God was going to show him what he was really like. God was going to heal him of his bombastic emptiness. I'll follow you, Lord, no matter what. I'll show everyone what they really like. I'll never desert you, Lord. Oh, Peter. So it is with our sin. It must become more and more bitter to us. We will have to cry out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? We'll have to feel that we can't live on anything that's within ourselves. Either our self-life, our sin, the creature must be made distasteful to us. All the trust that come out of it must be made distasteful to us. Because God's way, first of all, is to kill and then to make alive. How do you like this for discipleship? <coughs> Jesus' method is first to kill and then to make alive. Jesus has made war. He is the mighty warrior. And do you know who he's at war against? You. Your self-life. Everything the regarding sin and hooks into sin that's driving you. And Jesus has taken a vow. It must die. I will kill it. Because you must live and be free. This is what 
sanctification truly is. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is the method of Jesus to take us to Mara and then make it sweet. Three times Jesus came to, G to Peter for the three times he denied him and said, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And with reality of heart, for the, probably for the first time in Peter's life, he could look into the eyes of the Lord Jesus and say, You know how I love you. And then once Peter has tasted his bombastic emptiness, Jesus makes it sweet. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. You are the rock upon which I will build my church. But he had to go to Mara and his Mara was underneath the crow of a rooster. Where's yours? You will be there. 